Okay, this week is Thanksgiving, and we have much to be thankful for, and I think some of us in particular. Kevin, you have seen what we all believe is a significant God movement around you. You have a sister who lives in California? California, yes. And she's sick, or has been, so. So my sister's had uh, two different forms of leukemia chronic lymphocytic leukemia and acute myeloid leukemia. And the remedy for this, or what do they do? So chronic lymphocytic leukemia is one of those things that's not generally considered curable. So you have it kind of like luggage for the rest of your life. And acute myeloid leukemia is a killer, and it's one of those things that kills quickly. So that they do with a bone marrow transplant. Okay, so what happened? So amazingly, they found acute myeloid leukemia because of my sister's insistence going to the doctor. She'd been praying about it and went to the doctor and said, hey, I think I need a bone scan. And it turned out that the doctor said, no, I think we could do without that. She ended up insisting, saying, you know, hey, no, I really think I need a bone scan. And when they did that, they found the acute myeloid leukemia and they said, hey, we need to find a donor, preferably a donor in your family. So at that point, I sent out the red rockets and asked a bunch of you to pray that I might be able to be seen as a donor and a few months later, I found out that I actually was a potential donor for my sister, even though my blood type is different for my sisters. Which is, I don't get it, but anyway. <laughs> so you have a different blood type from your sister, but they did find that you were a, a possible right. donor. Right. Okay, so I remember you went out so and did the whole dealio. I, I went out. Acute myeloid leukemia is a killer, as I said. So what ends up happening is they give you immediate chemo. And so my sister had immediate chemo. There were a couple of... Uh, problems with the chemo. She ended up with a couple of different things they call subdural hematomas, so bleeding on the brain as a result of the chemo. Mm. And we actually thought that we might lose her. I went out to help my brother and my mother take care of my sister. And it, it just turned out that it was a, a good opportunity and I was there for six weeks. At the end of the six weeks, and they needed to wait that long in order for the brain bleeds to stabilize, they said, now we think we can do it. Can you stay for a little bit longer <laughs> so that we can do the bone marrow transplant? So you did the bone marrow transplant, and, the and there are a series of kind of check marks. Hope this happens, hope this happens, hope this happens. So it, it turns out that they actually think that when you do the bone marrow transplant, it'll take six to eight months to really take. And so the first yep, phase... You mean for it to take? For, for the, it to take. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. So the doctor said, hey, you know, in the first phase of this, you know, it'll take 10 to 60 days for the bone marrow to actually start to produce blood cells. And then once the blood cells start to be produced, it'll take a little bit longer for you to actually change the blood type. And then after the blood type is changed, the cancer may or may not go into remission. So what's happened? So what's ended up happening, 10 days after we did the transfusion, the blood cells from me, the, the stem cells from me, started producing in my sister. Which is really good. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. And I'm hugely grateful to you guys for praying because I heard that you guys prayed for it to happen at 10 days as opposed to 60. Uh, so it was awesome. And kind of a pretending of good news. Number one, it's weird to think of your blood cells multiplying in anybody else. Kevin. <laughs> Number two, praise the Lord. Amen. I mean, that's Amen. exactly it, because it will, you know, you, you said 10 to 60 days, hey, pray for 10 days. And so... And 10 days has started. So the doctors were amazed, 
And the doctor said, well, you know, we'll see what the next step was. So I'm, I'm going to skip to the end. Yeah. Because three weeks ago, my sister's blood type changed from O positive to A positive. So my stem cells are now producing, you know, it's sibling rivalry at the cellular level. <laughs> uh, That's too weird so for to all even you, think about. All those that have small kids. <laughs> and more importantly, last week, or actually I guess it's two weeks ago now, my sister's in complete remission, not only for AML, but also for her CLL. They cannot find any cancer cells in her body. Okay. The Bible talks about a clap offering. And so the fact that, you know, we started this process, we actually did the transplant in August and we're to November. The time frame, as you can imagine, when they said six to eight months, this is a lot shorter than six to eight months. And my sister actually went home yesterday to be with her dogs. And so, <laughs> in a, it's just amazing. And I will tell you also that she's the worship leader in her church. Oh, wow. So she's the one who does the music and everything else. So she had her church praying and my church praying. And I just want to say thank you to all of you because it's, you know, God is good. And this is one of those things that you ever get one of those gifts that there's no way that you could do anything about it, right? This is one of those gifts. So thank you. So we say God is good. You say all the time. We say all the time. You say God is good. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. And he is. Amen. Right? So, thank you. Hang out there for a second. (laughs) Our theme for this year as a church is deeper and wider. We want to go deeper in our connection with God and in our connection with one another. And we want our lives to have impact. We don't want to just be here. So we want to go wider. Now, one of the primary tools in doing that is, I'm absolutely convinced, is the Bible. It's the story. It's God's story of interacting with us. The how, the why. And that's why we decided as a congregation we're going to read through the New Testament this year. And some of you have joined in that process. So, awesome. Thank you. Let's just redouble our efforts. Don't grow weary in doing good. We just finished the book of Romans and we're also reading in Matthew. For the last several weeks, including today, we've taken one of the passages that we have read from and we've kind of marinated in it on Sunday morning. We're going to do that again today. Here's the thing about this passage. Kevin's going to read it. He's not here just for good looks at this point. He's going to read this passage for us. Here's the thing about this passage. If we were to do a series of conversations in which we talked about what are the inhibitors of going deeper and wider, what kind of blocks that in our life, this is one of the things that we would talk about, today's topic. So we're going to be reading an awesome exchange where Jesus gives this really cool story from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Peter asks, you're going to find out in a second really how provocative this question is. Peter asks a question, and Jesus gives a story, a parable, an answer, and Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, Kevin's going to read that for us. Kevin? Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts 
with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment so the payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thanks, Kevin. You may be seated. Real quick side note, that word there, delivered him over to the jailers. That's not the common word for jailer. There's a word for jailer that means like a guard. If you're reading in the NIV version, it will say, and to be punished, because this is the word for punisher. This was the person in the jail who did the punishment. The king has delivered the second servant over to be punished, because this is a big deal. Forgiveness is a really big deal. It's really, really important. First of all, forgiveness is a big deal to our health. Dr. Everett Worthington is a psychology professor at VCU. I was doing this, and I wondered if any of you had had, had him. Uh, he's studied forgiveness clinically for the last decade, and I think he's written more extensively on it than, than anyone else. Through various studies, Dr. Worthington has found that forgiveness leads to a greater sense of well-being, stronger relationships, better moods, higher self-esteem, lower blood pressure, lower heart rates, and I found this really interesting, lower sweat rates. So those of you who sweat like a pig, maybe you haven't forgiven someone. In one of his articles, Dr. Worthington quotes a study conducted by some colleagues at the University of Iowa, and I'm going to read you this quote. Quote, Although the act may not come naturally to us, research has shown that learning to forgive lessens the amount of hurt, anger, stress, and depression that people experience. People who learn to forgive, still quoting, people who learn to forgive also become more hopeful, optimistic, and compassionate. Again, still quoting, this is the summary of this study. People who learn to forgive report significantly fewer symptoms of stress, such as backache, muscle tension, dizziness, headaches, upset stomachs. In addition, people report improvements in appetite, sleep patterns, energy, and general well-being. Forgiveness is a really big deal. It affects how we feel. It affects how we relate. And we know it's a big deal. We know we're supposed to forgive. Look, honestly, by the way, I believe the fact that we know forgiveness is a big deal, that it's a value to us, I think that's a testimony to Jesus' influence over our culture. The honor-shame culture that dominated the ancient world, they didn't have the value of forgiveness. But it's a big deal, and we know it. So it shouldn't surprise us that forgiveness is a big deal to God. He designed us, we would expect nothing less. The Apostle Paul, 
in his letter to the Ephesians. He recycles in that letter one of his favorite themes. He says, you got to put off the old self and put on the new self. In other words, this connection that we have with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, it's like something brand new in us, and we've got to put that on and take off what's old. In a certain section of that letter, he summarizes or sort of makes a list of what putting off and putting on looks like. At the very end of that, sort of at the high point of it, he says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Most of us know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, etc. You may remember that one of the phrases of this prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What most of us don't remember, or maybe some of you have never known, is that right after this prayer, Jesus has a little commentary that highlights one aspect of that prayer. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. Forgiveness is a big deal to God. I mean, he makes it the standard for our forgiveness. If we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. Now, in the passage right before the one that Kevin read for us, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how to deal with someone who sins against you. He lays out a process that's it's systematic, it's honest, it's kind, it also aims toward restoration. And Peter, after he hears this, he's a little surprised, I think. I think that's what leads to his question. He's like, wait, what? Uh, just how many times are we supposed to be forgiving? And Jesus' answer, again, highlights what a big deal forgiveness is. If you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. I'm going to give you the summary of Jesus' parable here. So here's what Jesus is saying. When we truly understand how much we've been forgiven by God, the size of the debt that we owe, and when we understand the cost of that forgiveness to God himself, then we are compelled to freely forgive other people, even at great cost to ourselves. When we come to understand God's forgiveness of us, we are compelled to forgive others. This is the point of Jesus' parable here. How does he communicate this? Well, he does it through the art of exaggeration, really, he says that, I'm going to say emperor throughout, I'm sorry, it's in my notes. Jesus talks about a king, but same thing. So he talks about a servant. The, the emperor calls all of his debts in. He calls all of his servants. And don't think house servant. These are people, obviously, these are people who are significant people in the kingdom. One of his servants comes in and he owes the emperor 10,000 talents. So it's really hard to compare money, some of that's subjective. You know, if you try to find out how much was a franc from France in 1840, how much is that worth in dollars today? That's hard to nail down exactly. But if we give that a try, the average worker in ancient Rome in this time made about one to one and a half talents a year. So let me do the math for you, for those of you who dropped out after the fifth grade. If you make somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 a year, and some of you make a lot more than that. But if you make between 50,000 and $100,000 a year, in today's dollars, that would amount to something like 500 million to a billion dollars. First of all, this was not a common servant, obviously. He owes an enormous amount of money. But this is crazy, ridiculous amount. Nobody could repay this. Not only so, this was the size debt that 
this could have ruined the finances of the emperor himself. Of course, if you're forgiven that kind of a debt, you'd feel unbelievably relieved and forgiven. That's the point. Then, right, he sets it up. Then, according to Jesus, that same forgiven servant was unwilling to forgive a very small amount to another servant who owed him some money. The amount that Jesus offers is 100 denarii. Again, you know, if you adjust today's dollars, rough to do, but I got a couple of different sources that value that somewhere between $10,000 and $20,000. So, you know, it's not nothing, but in the face of a billion, with a B, a billion, this is a very, very, very small amount that's owed. So Jesus set up an impossibly unthinkable condition here, and he wants to make the point, if you really knew how much you had been forgiven by God and at what cost to himself, then you'd have had no problem forgiving others their small offenses against you. You'd feel compelled to do so. All right, so let's marinate in this a little bit. And to do so, I think we need to ask four questions. Question number one, why is the emperor able to forgive while the servant is not able to? What's the difference or the king? Why is he able to forgive and the servant is not able to forgive? What's the difference? As we've already seen, it's not about the size of the debt. Think about that. In fact, if the size of the debt were the reason, we'd expect the opposite results. We'd expect the servant to be able to forgive, the, you know, the hundred denarii. The emperor never could forgive 10,000 talents. In other words, the size of the offense does not explain the forgiveness here. So Jesus is intentionally making liars out of us when we say to ourselves, well, you don't know what he did. I mean, you haven't heard what she said. Evidently, that doesn't explain our lack of forgiveness. The difference in attitude between the emperor and the first servant also has nothing to do with the nature of their relationship. Because the first servant is subservient to the emperor, and he's in debt to the emperor in exactly the same way that the second servant is subservient to the first servant and in debt to the first servant. Relationally, there's no difference. Not only so, it's fascinating. Jesus goes out of his way to make this point that the second servant appeals relationally to the first servant about his debt in exactly the same way, using the same language that the first servant used with the emperor. Have patience with me. I will pay you back. Evidently, the reason for our unforgiveness is not because it was our sister or our great friend or someone we thought we could trust. I think this is a big deal for us. Jesus wants us to clearly see that the difference between forgiveness and the lack of forgiveness has nothing to do with the circumstances of the offense. It has to do with the heart of the offender, yours and mine. That's where forgiveness breaks down, not in the relationship, not in the particulars of the offense, but in the heart. Second question, so what is it about the emperor that enabled him to be forgiving? This was great for me. I, I looked at a, a number of different commentaries talking about this passage this week, and one guy said something, just a little thing, blew my mind. It wasn't that big a deal for him, but it blew my mind. He said this about the whole thing, about the, uh, the parable in particular, he said this, the passage hangs on one word in the first servant's request, have patience with me. Everything else flows out of that. 
So then he went on to explain that the Greek word behind the word patient, for the word that we translate patient, is a compound word. It's makrothumeo. Makro meaning long or, or big. Thumeo meaning passion or heat or temper. In other words, he said, you know, we translate this, almost all modern translations translate this word patience, but in older English, they translated this word long-suffering. And he thought this, this was appropriate. It captured more the sense of this word. Long, not short-tempered, but long-tempered. Long-suffering, able to suffer for a long time. To be forgiving, we have to be long-suffering. As we know, Listen to this. When an offense happens to us, an emotional hole is created. There's no question. It creates emotional pain. Look at it this way. There's an absence of joy. There's an absence of a sense of well-being. There's a hole in us. Something feels wrong. It might be helpful for us to think of that something wrong. Think of it as a hole. And something has to fill that hole. It's like a vacuum in nature. But that hole cannot exist in emotional space. It must be filled, right? It demands to be filled. I think there are three options for us for filling our emotional hole created by offense. Number one, we can suffer passively. We usually do this through self-pity or depression. And obviously, in this way, we turn ourselves into victims. I think there's another option. A second option, more active. We can make the other person suffer. This is more fun, it feels better, and it works in the short run. It works. We feel better. We can fill the hole up with coldness or insult or gossip or slander or manipulation. Ironically, this makes us a victim too. Because what ends up happening here is our life, or at least part of our life, gets focused on the offense. Our life gets stolen by the offense. We live in light of the offense. We're a victim. Or, a third option, another active option, we can forgive. We can take the suffering ourselves. More about that in a minute. That needs explanation. So why don't we forgive? I maybe have already said enough to explain why we don't forgive, but let's tease it out a bit. Look, we know what a big deal forgiveness is to our health, to our relationships. We know it's important, and we know it's a big deal to God. Why do we sometimes struggle with it? Okay, before we answer, let's acknowledge two things. I wish we had time to talk about this. We could do a whole bunch of conversations about forgiveness, couldn't we? But let's just say two things about forgiveness, that, and let's give ourselves a little bit of a break. Number one, forgiveness is a process. It's, it almost never happens immediately. It takes time, and it takes some emotional and spiritual work. Again, I wish we had time to struggle with that. If you are struggling with this, there are resources available to you. Email me, or we'll get you some information. Also, you may need someone to pray for you, and sometimes this cannot be dislodged without that. And there will be people here over to my right and your left to pray for you after the service today. Take advantage of that. Second thing we need to acknowledge about forgiveness is it's hard work. Remember the bit about suffering. I mean, it kind of goes with the process thing. Still, 
Acknowledging those two realities, we still have to ask, why do we sometimes hang on and not forgive? Why do we allow certain offenses to dominate our thoughts and our time? Why do we cling so tightly to being right or being paid back? Why do we imagine elaborate scenarios where they are begging for our forgiveness and we crush them with our refusal? I realized in the first service that was a little bit too specific. Why don't we forgive? There may be a lot of reasons, but we have to acknowledge there's one reason that leaps out of this text. And I think we need to own it. It may not explain your heart, but it's worth considering. And actually, it may always be a part of why we don't forgive. Maybe we haven't truly understood. Or maybe we're just not remembering what we once understood. Remember Jesus' point? When we truly understand how much we've been forgiven by God and the cost of that forgiveness to God himself, then we are compelled to freely forgive other people, even at great cost to ourselves. Maybe we haven't understood. Not really. I don't think Peter completely understood. Look at this question in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I want you to know something about this. Peter thinks he's going big here. According to the best Jewish discussions of the day, the standard answer for this was three. And there was a standard answer. This discussion happened in rabbinical circles. And you can understand why theological discussions would have gone to a kind of accounting for this. I mean, God doesn't want us to be doormats. They didn't use language like proper boundaries, but it's appropriate and healthy for us to take care of ourselves. We don't want to constantly let someone keep running over us. You, you should forgive an offender three times according to standard rabbinical teaching. But Jesus recognizes, listen, Jesus recognizes the nature of Peter's thinking here. Peter is looking for the limits. Just how good do I have to be, Jesus? I mean, how much do, can I get away with here? This is often how we approach questions of character, isn't it? We try to manage our character. We grit our teeth and try to be good. We try to identify the boundary, and we work hard as we can to color and stay within the lines. This is how we manage our drinking, or our anger, or our pornography usage, or our spending, or our need to control everything. We try to manage it. Once in a while, we color outside the lines, and we're so sorry. And we certainly expect others to forgive us. I mean, after all, we aren't that bad. In fact, we've done really, really well lately. This is how we approach our character usually. We try to manage it. So Jesus says, no, Peter, you don't forgive three times. You don't forgive seven times. You forgive someone basically infinity and beyond. That's essentially what he means by 77. And by the way, Peter, this is not something you can do on your own power. You can't manage this. This requires a new understanding. You need to really see and understand just how much the emperor has forgiven you. You've got to get the right proportions into your heart. What's been done to you is small potatoes. You need to see that. Then you won't be asking how many times, but you'll get to where you're asking, Lord, how do I get there? Because you'll want to get there. Last question four, where is there? What is forgiveness? This is not an exhaustive answer this morning, but it gives us a really good start. Jesus in this parable gives us a really good glimpse at what forgiveness actually is. Verse 27, check out verse 27. 
I think it had three elements to it. He had pity on him, he released him, and he forgave his debt. First of all, the emperor had pity on the servant. This word is related to the word for guts. I've heard this defined as being moved deep within ourselves to fully identify with the other person. Being moved deep within ourselves, being moved in our gut to identify with the other person. The emperor, deep within himself, could feel the burden of the servant, and he could put himself in the place of the servant. He put himself in the place of the servant. He understood what this might have meant to the servant and his life, his finances, and his family, what this was doing to his wife. You know what happens when we are offended? We tend to highlight the differences between ourselves and our offender. I would never do that. I can't imagine that. How could they? We create a caricature of their character. You know what a caricature is? It's those folks that do a drawing of someone and they dramatically overemphasize one aspect of them, like their forehead or their nose or their eyes or their ears or are dramatic and drawn out of proportion and then it all becomes about the ears. In other words, for us, we create an emotional caricature. That person becomes the offense in our mind and heart. That's what they are, that offense. If we're going to forgive, we have to do work within our own gut to recognize the commonalities with that other person. It's hard. It's painful. Remember the long-suffering bit. We don't want to think we're anything like that. We want to fill that hole with angry denouncements. We want them to see what they've done and to see how bad they are. We aren't like that. But when we take pity, we recognize that we are like them, maybe in a different way, but we're just like that. Secondly, the emperor released the servant. He let him go. He did not hold him. He did not put him in debtor's prison. He did not sell him into slavery or his family to buy back some of what he was owed. He released him. When we can't forgive, we can't let go. We cling to what happened. We go over and over and over and over it, and we refuse to realize that we are only hurting ourselves. All that energy, that ultimately becomes self-punishment. Have you heard this before? Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. We've got to let go. Release. Thirdly, the emperor forgave the debt. The servant no longer owed anything. Not only does he avoid debtor's prison and slavery, he's able to return to his life and the money he makes is his. He keeps. He has no debt. It's forgiven. It goes away. Many of you have heard our story enough to know that before Diane and I moved to Northern Virginia, I pastored a church in the Boston area for over 12 years, and wonderful years early in our lives. Our kids were born there, and great stuff happened in that church, and really good friendships and great ministry. We felt God was calling us away and leading us to go to Northern Virginia and start Gateway Community Church. We didn't know the name at the time, but we knew that people down there in Northern Virginia were absolute and utter pagans, so we needed to go. So we, you know, get a small group of folks who are really important to us, and we begin to tell them that we're going to make this move. And one of those people, we'll call them Peter, had been a great friend and my right-hand man in the ministry there for years. 
I've learned a lot in that relationship. And he's been very supportive of Diane and I and our kids. And we told a group of people, you know, we feel God calling us away from here and we're going to go plant a church outside of Washington, D.C. And almost instantly, the atmosphere in the room changed. It felt like here. It got a lot colder. And Peter began the process of, this would continue over the two or three months that we continued to, in ministry there before we moved here. He started punishing us and questioning everything about our ministry and encouraging other people to question everything about our ministry, questioning everything about our friendship. Now, I tend to be, those of you who've been around long enough, you know this, I tend to be sentimental, but it may surprise you, I'm really not very emotional. So don't ask me how I'm feeling because I don't ever know. For years, I was so mostly detached from my feelings. I really never knew when somebody hurt my feelings. So something would happen to me or to us, and we'd go away and die. How are you feeling? You know, hurt your feelings? No. Of course, I realized later when anger would leak out or something would happen, it took me years to begin to realize, you know what, that probably did hurt my feelings. So this happens with Peter, and it hurts my feelings. And I was really, really, really mad. He was undoing much of what had happened in our church and in our relationship. So I had to choose to push against the hurt. Not deny it, but not let it determine how I felt and how I thought about myself and how I thought about our years there. I had to choose to remember the good things about my friendship with Peter. That was one of the things that helped me. I remembered the whole history and who he was and who he had been. I had to choose to remember the fruit of our ministry together. I had to choose to see, and this was big, I had to choose to see this as an isolated incident and not representative of Peter's whole character. I had to choose the reality that Peter didn't owe me anything. He had already paid me more than I deserved in friendship and help over the years. He didn't owe me anything. I had to identify with him and take pity. Where did this come from? I had to release him. And I had to forgive. He didn't owe me anything. All right, Gateway, so go do it. Okay, one more thing. Let's underscore this. Let's highlight it. Hebrews 12, 15, the author says this. Here's the point as we read this. Don't dismiss this too easily. There are a number of you in here this morning who are actively struggling with this in a very live way. And you're almost the lucky one because you know that you've got work to do so you can go do it or not, but you know you've got work to do. But for all of us, there's probably residue of sometimes little things, sometimes big things, and we go through life collecting those things, carrying them around with us in our backpack. And we just find ourselves angrier than we have a right to be in certain situations, or tireder than we have a right to be, or there's too much stress, and we're not even in touch enough to realize that some of it is because of this order that we're carrying around. So 
Hebrews 12, 15 says this, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I think unforgiveness is like a bitter root. This analogy occurred to me this morning. I used it in the nine o'clock service. I don't know if any of you have ever taken a tree down in your yard. You probably have, but if you have somebody do that for you, or if you did it and you know what you're doing, they take the tree down and then they take the stump out. But what they can't ever do is get all of the roots out because the roots will spread out as far as the ball of the tree. And so what you'll find two years later is little trees growing up 10 or 15 feet apart around where that tree was because there's a root left in the ground. And this is what unforgiveness does becomes a bitter root that will grow up later in your yard. And you're thinking, I showed them they're living their life. Don't let this bitter root, don't let this take root. Do the work that we need to do to do forgiveness and, you know, let's, let's not minimize this. What a perfect conversation for us to have to introduce the mercy meal. The church has been celebrating this for 2,000 years. What we've acknowledged is, God, we owed God this huge debt, a huge debt. Everything we do in which we're trying to find our meaning, purpose, and pleasure apart from God, that creates distance and dissonance, and it is an offense to God and to the universe he created. And we do it daily. And we collect those, many without even realizing it. And it creates a hole in the universe that must be filled, and God filled it himself with his own long-suffering and the death of his son Jesus on our behalf. The Bible uses an old-school word. It says that our sin was imputed to him. It means our sin... That hole that we created was put on Jesus, and God killed it. So he dealt with it. It's not that he didn't fill the hole, he did, but we don't have to fill it. We go free. That's what this meal means. And you're invited to participate. If you're visiting with us and you can participate in your fellowship, then you can participate here. Don't sit in your chair and think you're not worthy. If you're visiting Gateway... Welcome to a room full of hypocrites. We are people who say one thing and do another. None of us are worthy. We are all messed up. If you're not messed up, please leave. You'll make the rest of us feel really bad. <laughs> so welcome. You're invited. You're going to act like priests this morning. You're going to offer this to one another. What's so awesome about this is God has invited us into... Uh, relationship with him. He's forgiven us. He's made everything right. He's released us. He's invited us into grace and he's invited us into rest and he's invited us into peace. So peace of the Lord be with you. Let's remain standing for one moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to take the truckload of sins that are on our shoulder and we are literally going to deposit those and give them to him. And what he's going to do is take pity and release us and forgive us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you and offended you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done.
and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Have mercy on us and forgive us. We are so thankful that you promised us if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just and you will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We receive that this morning. strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, so think about that one. This is on the night where he is betrayed and he knows it's coming. Just a couple of days later, he's going to hang on a cross dying and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Completely identifying with us. Father, forgive them. They are completely screwed up. They think it's about the size of their home. They get lost in their busyness. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He took bread at the Passover meal and he said, hey, this is my body broken for you. So you're going to take this and pass it to the person next to you and say, the body of Christ broken for you. Choir, let's sing the first verse of this old hymn together. Come ye sinners. This is an invitation to us. Here we go. body of Christ, broken and filling up the hole for you. Take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So you'll turn to the person next to you and you'll say, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. second verse together. Come ye thirsty. Come ye thirsty. Come and welcome God's free bounty glorify true believing true repentance 
blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. Thank you. Amen. God is good. All the time. All the time. Let's go to the second verse of the song, Haunted by the Past. Is that a wonderful line or what? All because of what Christ did for us. Children said, Amen. Amen. And go in peace, everybody. Have a great Thanksgiving.